people can see how this technology is, is going to be used, and it's not just within sort of ASX. You know, some of the banks, the global ones like BNP and Northern Trust and Goldman Sachs and others, other exchanges are doing things. So it's almost like if you're not doing something here now, well, you're probably going to be having to play catch up in the future because you really need to start understanding this tech and potentially understanding the pace of change and how fast things can happen. Good day, folks, and welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nicey, and today I'm speaking with Paul Stonham. Paul is the general manager of the DLT division at the Australian Stock Exchange. For the last few years, the ASX has been developing an enterprise DLT that uses VMware's blockchain and runs the DAML smart contract language. In this conversation, we talk about traditional finance, getting into distributed ledger tech, and some of the use cases. Paul is a technologist always looking to improve efficiency, and we get into tokenization of assets and the utility of NFTs. Before we get to Paul, a quick note about our sponsor. The Blockchain New Zealand podcast is brought to you by Easy Crypto. Five years ago, a passionate bunch of Kiwis created Easy Crypto in New Zealand to enable Kiwis and others to buy and sell cryptocurrency. The Easy Crypto website is simple and straightforward. They have heaps of great educational content that caters to both beginners and experts and are very transparent about fees. You can buy crypto with New Zealand dollars or with your credit card and get crypto sent directly to your wallet. Investing in cryptocurrency can of course be risky, so always do your own research. Visit easycrypto.com to start your crypto journey today. And now my conversation with Paul Stonham. So Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. You are coming to us today from Sydney, and I think specifically the ASX. So it seems like you've been with the Australian Stock Exchange for a little while, um, well before you were into the blockchain side of things. Um, can you tell us what you were doing a little bit before then? Were you more into traditional market activities? And uh, then how did you get into blockchain? And then we'll talk more about what actually it is that you're up to right now. Great. Uh, thanks, Jeff, and thanks to Blockchain New Zealand for uh, for having us uh, today. So I guess, as you mentioned, yes, sort of background is more traditional sort of derivatives and, and equities trading, but always from, I guess, a technology perspective, whether that be in uh, trading systems and, and co-locations and, and networks from a from a business development perspective. So, uh, you know, I've been involved in trading system replacements and enhancements uh, and upgrades and things like that, and then also ran, um, ASX has, has another business called technical services here, which is really about sort of, you know, infrastructure as a service, whether that be data center and co-location, um, networks and, and things like that too. So I uh, always sort of had a, an interest in the, the technology side from traditional financial markets. And then obviously once um, ASX decided to go down a DLT path with its chest replacement project, um, sort of that piqued my interest to sort of uh, pivot in and, and find a bit, find out a bit more about uh, this, this, Probably it's not as it's not as emerging as it used to be a few years ago, but because uh, we're sort of you know, into the weeds of it and all that sort of stuff. But um, you know, three or four years ago, um, the ASX started up the, the DLT Solutions team or the Solutions business, um, and we sort of launched ourselves in production um, late last year. Okay, so three or four years ago—that's earlier than I would have expected. Yeah, so I mean, I guess the ASX have announced the the whole, I guess, the adoption of the, the DLT-based technology for chess. Yeah, probably four or five years ago now, I'd imagine. So I think we were probably one of the early adopters, um, at least uh, from a, from a, I guess an enterprise exchange uh, background in the, the tech. And and again, I think you know at its core, I guess you know for for us, and I really sort of see it as at least at at, a, at its minimum is it's the next generation of database technology. 
that, that you know has the potential to do all these different things, whether it's sort of TradeFi, CFI, all the way out to DeFi. But you know, at its core, if you know you're looking to upgrade a a database, or if you've got a really old database and you want to sort of try and sort of step, or you know, if you do the whole crawl, walk, run down a down a given path, then I think you know, just using and having a look at this technology just for its you know next generation of, of database attributes, um, you know, it would be a fascinating journey on its own for, for for potential companies and users of the tech stack. Yeah, you're right. It's absolutely a database technology and. Uh, Databases have come a long way since uh, sort of the rise of computing, 1950s, 1960s, uh, you know, remote terminal access, these type, types of things. And then along the way in the uh, 80s and 90s, there was a lot of research on distributed systems that kind of went away for a little while. Uh, then blockchain came along, Bitcoin came along, and now there's just been an absolute massive resurgence in this. So can you go ahead and... Uh, Tell us what DLT is and uh, tell us what that means in terms of as a service. Great. So, I mean, what we sort of, I guess, identified early on and sort of, I guess, ASX has identified early on in, in some of our other infrastructure as a service um, businesses is, is we obviously use, you know, enterprise grade, highly available, highly sort of stable products, whether that be a data center, whether that be a network, and ultimately, whether that be a DLT infrastructure. So, um, the exact same infrastructure that the ASX is going to use for the chess application, um, we've, we've packaged that up into, I guess, an as-a-service option to offer to customers to actually you know, whatever applications they want to write for any use case. Obviously, provided it's it's legal, I guess, um, customers can get access to the exact that exact same tech stack, you know, managed, operated, maintained by ASX, so they can then just concentrate on. You know the smart contracting layer and the and the north facing application layer of what makes their application special and what you know what attributes that they want to market um, to potential users of that application bearing in mind that that application is now writing sort of smart contracts and onto a ledger you know that's maintained and and, and monitored and, and upgraded and and things like that from the by the asx right so this idea of highly available i mean in terms of our contemporary, I guess, acceptance of, you know, streaming on demand, worldwide, global, uh, everything's available at our fingertips. This is sort of more and more important. And uh, you do really end up getting into the details there. And so I think in our earlier chat, you mentioned for a while, you've been fully involved in the data center side of things. Uh, and so now presumably you have a section of that or a branch of that that's dedicated to this ledger service. Well, we've actually gone, I guess, you know, a lot of our customers are already adopting cloud and where where I mean, most exchanges are adopting cloud. So we've actually, what we've done is deployed, um, you know, where we're sort of, you know, using the VMware blockchain and we're using the digital asset modeling language, um, the exact same sort of smart contracting language and the exact same blockchain that we're using um, for chess. We've spun that up into a multi-zone AWS cloud. So we have our sort of consensus or committer nodes, um, using sort of a Byzantine fault tolerance system uh, across multiple Amazon Australian sort of base zones um, for redundancy and that sort of stuff. And we're obviously maintaining uh, customer and client nodes across all those zones as well, such that, you know, there is no sort of single point of failure um, that would sort of, I guess, you know, bring down the platform. And I guess when you sort of think about it, you know, you sort of mentioned, you know, things happening in the 80s and 90s and that sort of stuff, you know, you would find that, you know, most places would just have a, you know, a primary site and a secondary site. I think, you know, what sort of DLT and the distributed nature of some of the, the tech stack is bringing in that sort of that more meshing capability such that, you know, hopefully from a technology perspective, you know, you'll find 
less downtime on DLT-based environments, and not just ours, probably any of them, they all, they all share similar attributes. They all might use different types of fault tolerances and failovers, but I think you know that's one real... That's as from I guess from an from an IT or from an uptime perspective, I think that's one real, you know, good attribute that a DLT um, you know platform can bring to the table. Yeah, back in the day when these things first got underway, you know, if you have if your distributed system is only two terminals, two computers, or two data centers, and if one of those lines goes down, then the message passing between the two, the first one would have to just wait indefinitely for a receive message to be acquired and then you send an acknowledge back and forth and you the same thing might happen at, at either end um, and so the whole research into distributed systems has, has looked to find better ways to do this and so one thing you mentioned there was uh, so VMware's blockchain uses a Byzantine fault tolerant consensus method and so uh, basically, and, what and, this... and, I, and I know you've got a, 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 a maths background, Jeff, so you probably understand the mechanics of it probably better than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's I, I have spent a lot of time trying to understand uh, specifically um, PBFT, which is the original algorithm called Practical Byzantine Fault Tolerance, and it's like the academic paper that was published is notoriously impossible to read. Um, and so a bunch of you know smart people got together and actually created an algorithm to implement this. And that's what a lot of these systems are based on today, um, including uh, VMware's. So in terms of this idea of DLT to blockchain, are we, are we calling it a blockchain? And if we are, like it's not a traditional blockchain, is that right? Look again, I mean, from from my perspective, I'm sort of I guess I'm I'm not on the if you sort of you know compare it to a politics I'm sort of not on not on the not on the left wing sort of CFI fanatic I'm not on the right wing DeFi fanatic I'm on sort of a thing what, whatever works okay for you as a potential user great you're an engineer great right? great you know whatever whatever you if if you want to start over here start over here and if it works for whatever your use case or what your customers want great if it's over here and it works. Um, sort of great. So I, for me, again, as a, as a sort of, you know, business development and, and, and business owner, I sort of tend to use sort of blockchain and DLT sort of interchangeably, although, yep. you know, some of the, some of the, our, our customers or some of the engineers and some of the technical advocates sort of into the weeds would sort of, you know, admonish me or call me out for that. But I think at a, when we're sort of talking to sort of, you know, enterprise uh, institutional type of customers, um, I generally use those, those sort of things interchangeably. And um, that sort of again, it, when you're sort of talking at a high level of the attributes of a system, um, I think the less complicated you can make it, and maybe the more analogies you, you can use as well, um, makes makes this tech stack a lot more easy to understand. Yeah, fair enough. And I mean, even people that talk about things that look the look the same, you know, maybe a Bitcoin and an Ethereum, uh, you get the same kind of response between someone that's always a level up and, yep. and says, "Well, no, actually, I, I think it looks more like this." Yeah, um, and, and I think again, I mean, you know. To get that to get that mass sort of institutional enterprise adoption, the more uncomplicated we can sort of make it, or the more uncomplicated you can make a use case, or the more uncomplicated you can make the description of a proof of concept or a pilot, um, you know, it's going to make the, the, the path to adoption, I think, um, you know, a lot a lot more smooth. So this is one of the benefits of using. Um... You also mentioned the smart contract language. It's called uh, DAML or DAML. Yep. So it stands for uh, Digital Asset Modeling Language. 
And uh, this is one of the benefits people are speaking about. I don't have personal experience with it, but they're saying just what you said is that it's more simple. Yeah. And again, I mean, we've, we've proven that to ourselves as well, sort of our engineering teams that have sort of been familiar with other languages. So again, it's as, you know, we sort of, you know, joked about it last time we spoke, it's sort of, it's a, it's a functional based sort of Haskell based programming language. And, you know, the, the number of lines of code you need to do the same thing in other languages is a lot less. And generally speaking, sort of, you know, you don't need to, to come from a coding background to be able to follow the workflow. So, you know, business analysts and others could actually follow the, the code and follow the workflow. And there's always sort of, I guess, uh, an outcome. So in terms of being able to user acceptance tests, complete your NFR tests and that sort of stuff, um, we've found it's a lot less work um, when we're doing stuff in Daml than when we're doing stuff in other protocols, be that DLT protocols or be those, you know, traditional protocols. Yeah, just, you know, just as I was reading up on some of this stuff, um, I did find, for example, um, about Haskell, the technical people, the programmers, actually, they say that this type of language is a programmer's programming language. And the reason they say that is that once you learn to do it well, uh, you're less prone to writing errors, which, as we know, and we've seen in the industry, you know, every smart contract that gets published is really a honeypot, especially if it gets popular for hackers and attackers to poke and prod and try to see if they can, you know, drain the funds or, mm, or mm. steal that NFT or something. And then just of note here, I read that uh, the bank, Barclays, they also have used the Haskell as their language um, for their derivative algorithms for the, for the same reason that uh, it's too risky to have an area where you've got an error that you might not even find um, at, at the time. So let's talk about some of the people that are using this. Yeah, great. So, I mean, we've, we're, as I sort of mentioned, um, you know, the platform's called Symphony. Uh, we launched it late last year. Uh, our first customer was um, the New South Wales government um, on, and, and KPMG sort of won a tender for that in construction industry transformation. So that's really, you know, I, I coined it as taking, taking the DNA of a building or taking the DNA of an apartment building um, you know, what constitutes that? So, you know, the concrete, where did it come from? What grade was it? Who certified it? Who poured it? When was it poured? Steel, cladding, obviously, and we've all sort of seen issues with the, with apartment cladding, um, you know, in the UK and here in Australia and potentially in, in New Zealand as well. Um, you know, waterproofing, who certified all that, that sort of thing. And what this application will do, we'll take in all that DNA of that building um, and then again, they'll have some, some, they've got some, you know, people far more smarter than, than us, the actuaries and stuff, and the, the modelers that will actually then use all that, or use all that data to actually rank or rate a trust score for that building. So again, you know, each, as these buildings are coming up, all the inputs will be put into the, to the immutable ledger, uh, a trust score will be produced. So again, from a consumer or someone who's looking to buy, um, an apartment, that's a really, really piece of valuable information, but again, for others in the ecosystem and, and, and you think sort of about the ecosystem that sort of already sort of is, is part of ASX's ecosystem today. They could be insurance companies that could plug into this application very easily because that data would be valuable to them because they again may change premiums depending on the attributes of a building. Um, banks again who lend against these buildings, again they may have different rates and different premiums associated with uh, different types of buildings and ultimately the actual the builder or the, the the owner of the building, um, you know, for one of the first times sort of ever would have an immutable auditable record of 
their ESG reporting, right? Because again, all those inputs are sort of, yep. you know, the, the carbon and, and the embodied carbon and things like that. They'd be able to extract that data and put them straight into the financial reports. And then that data is immutable and auditable for anybody that wanted to sort of do that as well. So I think it's a, whilst it sort of was, you know, it, it's, it's a initial use case was about sort of, you know, construction industries and tracking and tracing the DNA of an apartment, it's sort of, it can snowball. And that's the beauty of, I guess, blockchains and DLTs and ecosystems that anybody else can sort of, you know, with the appropriate permissions, you know, add a node in and snowball and get, get, get sort of the, the effects or you know, increase the usability of different apps, depending on sort of what the app does and what the data does and things like that. So for me, like, it's really fascinating to see sort of the snowball effect of some of these applications sort of, you know, throughout the ecosystem for, to, to users who you wouldn't have maybe thought was a day one sort of user and things like that. So uh, that app's live now. And we've got we've got a, um, a, quite a few others on our user acceptance testing environment. We've, we've yep. also got a sandbox environment for those who just want to learn about learn about DAML and you know download a few libraries and have a play around. But with, there's there's others there in sort of you know corporate governance and company secretarial sort of services for listed companies. Uh, you know back office automation. You know eliminating paper and reconciliation um, events. Um, for again, you know, banks and brokers and custodians and that sort of thing. Registry is a big one too. So again, whether that's sort of super member register records, uh, there are a number looking at private equity, the, again, the tokenization of private equity and the, the registry services, um, you know, for private companies and that sort of thing. And more recently, we're sort of, you know, having a lot of conversations with owners of, I guess, real assets. Um, wanting to explore the, the capability to tokenize these assets to either, you know, make that market more efficient or take that market to potentially to new users uh, and things like that. So I think you know, the application of the technology is only sort of going to grow and going to snowball. And sort of we're really seeing that from, I guess, the inbound inquiries now we're starting to get from from Australia and New Zealand based customers. Uh, and also obviously what we're sort of seeing overseas as well with, with, with what other, you know, exchanges and what, and what other institutions are doing um, with the technology too. I mean, Broadridge have launched a big bond repo platform in the US and that's being, you know, that's now sort of, you know, matching and trading and reconciling billions of dollars of, of bonds and repos, um, you know, in the US at the moment. So, you know, the institutional customers for specific use cases, probably starting on a more of a, a private permission type of blockchain or private permission type of ledger, you know, are really starting to get, hopefully, you know, more comfortable. Um, with using the technology for large transactions. Yeah, I agree that the applications here are kind of only limited by someone's creativity. I think to me and to a lot of people, they might think that the application sort of maybe starts and ends with something like traditional settlement and maybe being able to speed that process up or produce an immutable, auditable record that uh, is accessible by third parties. But just the first example you mentioned there about the building industry. So you mentioned about ESG requirements. Is this related to something like uh, carbon credits and tracking? That it sort could of... be exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or even, you know, if the if it was an apartment building and the, the strata company wanted to make it an ongoing carbon neutral building, they would be able to know exactly what carbon footprint it took to make that building, what its ongoing emissions are of that building, and then obviously potentially offset that with, with some type of carbon credit arrangement. Um, into the future. So I think, you know, that's really a, a great characteristic of this technology is that others can get access to this information um, to do better things as well. And the just to stick on this for one more thing, the idea of a trust score, can you expand on that? Like what what is the trust? 
so I guess it's the trust in terms of how hot, what's the quality of the building. So did again, the, did did all those components come from right. reputable companies? Were they certified, you know, by independent government authorities and, and things like that? So it's sort of it's almost like when you go into a Harvey Norman or a technology shop and you know look at a fridge or a washing machine or a dryer, you get the star ratings about how efficient it is. So again, you know, having that sort of star rating. Um, for a building as a consumer to sort of to say, is this a high quality building? Did they use the best components? Was everything certified by independent yep. validated certifiers or did people just sort of self-certify? And then if they've self-certified, you know, how reliable are those records? So, um, you know, the algorithms built within the application, um, you know, do all those sort of weightings and things like that. But obviously, um, I'm not the subject matter expert on yeah, that's how right. they've done it, but um, they've, 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 they've made a little video that um, sort of explains that sort of stuff, which, uh, which we can maybe put in a link somewhere along the lines. We can start to get the feel, though, that these types of business relationships are quite complex. And the idea of putting them on a standard blockchain uh, doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily fit, um, especially when you think about various privacy concerns, who, who wants to see the data at, at what point. Uh, you know, lately in New Zealand, we've had a jib crisis. And uh, this idea of a trust score might be related to that as well. The, the way that it stood was that I think only like one major company um, sort of met the regulations and it was fine until all these supply chain issues crept up. Mm. Uh, and, and then builders wanted to, you know, go find a supplier and import their own jib. And uh, somewhere along the way, it doesn't meet requirements and, and uh, you know, spools into a, quite a big mess. And I think, yeah, and the bigger, the bigger ecosystem you could have of users, whether that's, you know, port authorities, transport companies, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, whilst, and, and, the traceability is almost sort of generic. Is it, a, is it, a, is it a, an apartment building? Is it some a, an agricultural type of asset? So once you can get all those components correct, especially if you're a you know, a, a fintech or, or an institution coming up with these ideas, if you can get it working, you know, for one type of asset class, um, or you know, again, given at the moment this this particular application is just just for the state of New South Wales, well, you know, apartment buildings are built this pretty much the same everywhere, right? In Australia and New Zealand and probably the world. So, you know, if you've got a good idea, and, and the beauty of, I guess, um, the smart contracting modeling language we're using is the fact that it's deployable not just on our blockchain. Um, you know, Digital Asset have made that, you know, in, in, integrated into other blockchains, into just a normal Postgres database. So, if you wanted to, to take your application and, you know, sell it to a customer in Singapore or in New Zealand or in the US, you're not having to build the whole application from, from scratch if they potentially want to use a different blockchain. So it's almost like it's starting to solve that whole Android iOS yeah. issue. If we, if we sort of take a mobile phone sort of example, you've only got one set of code. That code is DAML and it'll now work and integrate to multiple different ledgers or even just traditional Postgres databases. Yeah, it's definitely another benefit. Uh, I believe they call this composability. Um, but essentially, if if you folks you know write something either for building industry or for asset settlement uh, that works really well, then it's much more easier uh, to pick that up and drop it into a different chain and a different industry entirely. You generally don't get this, you know, even through like uh, other smart contract languages like Solidity, you have to, you know, check which version you're using because it might not be compatible with the future version and on and on it goes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's definitely one of the benefits of this type of DLT. Um, do you know anything about 
other enterprise blockchains in the space? Not not do you know anything about them, but sort of from your point of view, what sets you folks apart? Like um, I'm thinking there's IBM running Hyperledger. Yeah. Amazon has one as well. Yeah, look, I mean, and, and look, I, I don't think, and this is just my own personal opinion, but I don't, I don't think there's, there's, there's going to be a winner of the blockchain or, or the ledger wars. I think, you know, we'll end up in an environment where we have multiple different ledgers and customers just choose the one that works best for them and the one they're most comfortable with. What what we're seeing and what we're really working on is the layer below that as to how do we make the assets on any blockchain interoperate with others. So, you know, if something's minted, minted on our platform, but it needs to be taken over to a an Ethereum-based ledger or, or a quarter-based ledger um, for utility or for collateral on something else, how do we you know, make that available? Or And again, there's, there's obviously, um, a number of banks here in in Australia looking at stable coins. Um, you know, some of those are being minted on a on a private Ethereum blockchain too. But how do we get that asset from the, a private Ethereum blockchain, you know, into our platform such that customers can make the use the utility of those coins to again make processes and and commerce uh, more efficient. So so we're looking at sort of again potentially a a wallet layer or, or a wallet type of infrastructure where you can sort of lock and and mint or you know burn and release and all that sort of stuff to make okay. now and, and i think you know exchanges sort of have that trusted relationship or they, they are a trusted intermediary where they would be trusted to sort of you know lock and and, and reissue or or lock and remint and ensuring no sort of double spend double counting um and that sort of stuff and obviously also ensuring that those assets don't go missing which is the most important thing especially when you're sort of talking about valuable Real world assets, be them a you know a, a stable coin or a CBDC or a tokenized bond or a tokenized equity um, or a tokenized real estate for that matter. So on this point about trust, um, I read one of your articles that you wrote uh, about speed and trust. Uh, so I'll just read a piece of this for the audience here. Um, so you're talking about. Um, finance basically being a little bit sluggish to innovate or at least compared to crypto of course everything well, might well, be well, well, maybe, maybe conservative <laughs> <laughs> a bit more conservative yeah <laughs> everything is conservative compared to crypto uh, you say i know that trust is a very loaded term in the digital asset world where the trustlessness and permissionlessness of decentralized exchanges and wallets are seen by many as a matter of principle uh, but the truth is, if blockchain is going to go mainstream as the basis for financial infrastructure or assets, then it's going to have to gain the trust of companies and consumers. So I guess my question here to follow, uh, is this going to be a requirement for token, like a prerequisite for tokenization of assets? Is this ultimately what we're going to need uh, for offering this type of service? I think for real world valuable assets, I think that's where it will start because again, the adoption of this new technology is embryonic. So I think, you know, if, if we're sort of gonna go crawl, walk, run, I don't think anybody's going to start crawling on a fully decentralized, you know, decks with real world assets with all your smart contracts open for both the good actors and the bad actors to see. So I really think initially to, to get any traction, it will start, um, probably more in a permissioned platform. Um, and, and I think once people get comfortable with the tech, they may go out. But I think if, that, if that's the first thing you're going to do, that's to me is high risk. And obviously, as I sort of said, you know, 
institutions, enterprises are are conservative by their nature, and they're obviously conservative because most of us are, are regulated um, by regulators. We can't have those mistakes. You can't be on the front cover of a uh, of the Financial Times or the AFR um, and things like that because something's sort of gone wrong in 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 a in a central in a decentralized platform where you don't know anybody who you're, you're, you're dealing with and, and, and talking to and that sort of thing. So I, I really think my, well, that's my personal point of view from an enterprise institutional type of perspective. I think those assets, you know, would be, would be tokenized in a more permissioned way. Um, and then it may grow from there or, or we might find there's enough efficiencies from there as again, provided again, that there's not big walls up to get others into that ecosystem that can actually add value to that. Uh, do you think we'll ever see something like uh, real estate on a blockchain, like tokenized uh, land? I think yes. I mean, I, I think if you think about again, like you know, the the, the paper based titles of land registries, and, and 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 again, how long you know settlement for a for a for a residential user, and all the amounts of paperwork and the the settlement processes, and you know, even like whether even if it's just up you know, leasing and the paperwork paperwork associated with leasing, I think any. Any multi-party workflow that involves paper and wet signatures, you know, the movement of, you know, whether it's checks or, or, or cash is a great use case um, for a DLT application because, again, you know, the beauty of the DLT is that single source of truth. So any party that's permission to see that information at any point in time uh, can do that. So, yeah. I mean, there's obviously delays when if you're with, with, with real estate, you know, when you're agent tells you to transfer you know the deposit into here and it's almost like there's been a lot of scams recently where others are intercepting those emails and people are transferring money to the wrong accounts but again if you've got a stable coin on a platform and all the protections around that and things so i think you know it's very embryonic at the moment but i you know i think and i'd imagine and i was sort of down in melbourne um last week for sort of fintech australia's annual intersect yep. conference and the the amount of you know ideas and, and fintechs and, and sort of again x Sort of corporate finance and, and 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 bank type of people are now sort of really getting into this technology and, and bringing these new ideas and bringing these efficiencies in. Um, I think we're we're at the start of the journey. It's very embryonic, um, but I think you know once a few use cases start to get a bit of traction, um, yeah, I think we will see more adoption of it. I like what you said there about uh, multi. What did you call it? Multi-party wet signatures. Oh yeah, more multi-party workflows that, that again involve moving paper, sending spreadsheets, sending emails, wet signatures. Um, yeah. You know, I think you know if you can, and if you can eliminate that into a a workflow that anybody that's got a vested interest in that workflow can see at any point in time, it just gives more assurance to everybody within that ecosystem that it's being it's efficient. I can see what's going on. I'm not having to ring someone to say, "Have you have you seen my payment? Can you tell me it's there? Where's my receipt?" Like I can see it on the ledger that it's done. I feel the same way about identity, how our identity is all linked via these pieces of paper that, you know, sort of have uh, wet stamps or, as you say, wet signatures. And we've upgraded a, a slight a slight bit. I've, If I ever have to do something with a birth certificate, it's now in a PDF format, you know, <laughs> but it, it's still a scan of something from decades ago. And so I think that identity is also going this way. Uh, you know, and I guess we're going to see the good bits and the bad bits that come out of these transitionary periods. Yeah, I mean, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not the subject matter expert on this at all, but it, there was a, there was a lot, a lot of sessions last week on sort of you know the 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 CDR or the consumer data rights sort of here in Australia as to identity, who owns your information, and how that may change in a 
in a blockchain or even a sort of a Web3 type of world, right? Okay, good segue there to a Web3 type of world. You've, uh, you've been busy this year. You've written quite a few articles. And uh, so I've got another snippet here for us. Uh, this one was about NFTs. So you say, for me, the most exciting implication of the coming infusion of blockchain into our culture is that it breaks down barriers between what many regard as the stuffy domain of financial services and the creative world, uh, providing innovators with the technology they need uh, to enable the future of finance in the metaverse is an exciting place to be. Uh, and so I like specifically that you mentioned culture in there. Open-ended question here. What are your thoughts? How do you feel about something such as a metaverse? Where do you think this is going? Look, I mean, if, I think if we start, I guess, at NFTs, and, and I love the tech behind um, an NFT, especially if it's an NFT that sort of has utility. Um, so to me, and, and you think about you know, non-fungible tokens for, I guess, if, if you haven't sort of heard what an NFT is, but I think, you know, to me, there are a lot of things in the financial world that are non-fungible. Um, and speaking of, we've, we've talked about carbon and ESG before, saying so, you know, some of the voluntary carbon um, or, or even the, 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 the you know, government or, or, or accredited carbon tokens, they're different projects from different types of land in different parts of the world or in different parts of the state. So they, a lot of that stuff is, is, is not fungible because it's not the same. So if you can use some of this, you know, the, the, the building blocks of the non-fungibility of a token, to me, that has a lot of applicability in some of the, the, the financial assets as well. I mean, we spoke about, you know, buildings and apartments, you know, each apartment has a slightly different square meterage, might have slightly different designs. Again, so you know, if you were going to tokenize apartments, you'd probably use, you know, non-fungent NFT type of schemas to do that. So I think, you know, the applicability is fantastic. Um, and I mean, I was over in New York a couple of months ago for, for NYC NFT. Oh, you and, attended and it, that? Okay. Yeah, I did. It was it was fascinating, just the, the amount of passion and the amount of ideas going around there. But I think, you know, to me, it's got to have some sort of utility, um, yeah, or, or some sort of ownership if it's if it's something like you know art and that sort of thing. So I mean, again, you know, Tennis Australia down here in in, in Australia, sort of again for the Australian Open this year, made sort of six thousand seven hundred and seventy six minted tennis balls with different designs, and all those those that those balls represented every single dot that Hawkeye has on the Rod Laver Arena, like the Centre Court Arena for the Australian Open. So you know, anybody who's a tennis fanatic could buy one of those NFT balls. And I guess, again, and it's not probably just Tennis Australia, it's other sporting codes. It's just like, what does that get me? It's a, it's a, it's a good ball. It's got a cool design and maybe it's a famous artist who designed it. But a lot of them are using that now as fan engagement. So when we're in, when we're in New York, you know, tennis, put, tennis Australia put a message over their Discord that says, you know, anybody... That owns this ball, you know, send us your address. We've got a box at the the Mets game, at City Field. Um, anyone that owns a ball can come and have a can come to the baseball game. So I think you know when you're thinking about that fan engagement or that, consu well, it's consumer engagement, right? So I think you know NFTs you know, in the retail space, consumer engagement. I mean, are my frequent flyer points or my frequent flyer? Is that going to be a metaverse type of application now, where now I have a an NFT of my, my, my frequent flyer card and my points and can I buy different things and, and all that. And how, how does that retailer or that airline engage me now um, in a different way perhaps and, and probably, um, you know, the sphere of what they can think about for, for engagement, consumer engagement, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a far bigger sphere in the Web3 metaverse world than probably the traditional world. 
Yeah, I think that sports memorabilia and collectibles, these types of things, I mean, it's such an obvious fit. Um, I, I feel like maybe in the early stages of this industry, it's been overshadowed a little bit by get rich quick schemes and, you know, ab absurd valuations in some of the collectibles projects. Um, but, you know, not even, not even just stuff for fun. And the, the tennis thing is a great example. I do remember seeing the headline. I didn't, uh, yeah, I think, well, yeah, what... yeah they're, they're, they're up for an award and I think they only just lost out to, 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 to Nike, obviously <laughs> a big <All> right. multinational <laughs> concourse. So it's, it's not too bad coming second to Nike, I guess, but that was, I mean, it's a fantastic use case, fantastic fan in you know, customer or fan engagement but there's utility to it there's utility to owning it and uh on the on the more boring side too right everything in the real world you know is unique down to the atomic level and so yeah every single apartment absolutely mm -hmm. unique every single land parcel absolutely unique every single identity document uh also you know these things it is just such a such a clear fit to see where this is going. Um, yeah, and, that, and, that, and that's the challenge to sort of explain that to decision makers that, no, like it, it's, it's, I guess it's, it's the tech behind of what constitutes and what can make or tokenize an NFT. It's not a picture of a cat. <laughs> no, it, uh, and I mean, there's so much space in between those two. <laughs> that is, that is true. And it's, that's the thing. It's sort of, you know, trying to bring that into the real world and, you know, adapt the tech stack for something that's actually useful and usable. How has uh, the reception been with your colleagues at ASX? You are the GM of the DLT um, platform section. Um, how, how is, is everyone excited about this or are you kind of a weird dude in the corner? <laughs> no, look, I mean, we've, 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 we've got a team now that sort of, you know, supports the platform and, and the engineers that know the protocols and sort of product management and all that sort of stuff. And, we're obviously live in production now with customers and things like that. So I think, you know, people can see how this technology is, is going to be used. And it's not just within sort of ASX. They can sort of see, you know, some of the banks, you know, whether it's sort of, you know, the, the, the global ones like BNP and Northern Trust and Goldman Sachs and others, other exchanges um, are doing things. So it's almost like if you're, if you're not doing something here now, well, you're probably going to be having to play catch up in the future because you really need to start understanding this tech and potentially understanding the pace of change and how fast things can happen, especially, you know, when you've got sort of, you know, faster moving fintechs who can, you know, the, the beauty of what we try and do is that the faster moving fintechs now get access to the exact same tech that a market operator uses as well for significant applications. So they get access to the same tech. So, you know, they can, again, move faster. They can sort of market things and they, and they potentially they can sell, you know, let's call it microservices to institutions that may just solve one problem. But once you solve one problem, it's easy to say, well, okay, if you trusted us to solve that that one little problem, how about we work on the second problem and the third problem and the fourth problem? And and not so much that they're problems, but the there may be inefficiencies. How can we make that more efficient? So I think once it goes back to that snowball effect. Once you can sort of start small and pick something that, you know, it's tangible and you're going to sort of, you know, you're going to save some operations costs, you're going to increase your compliance capability, you're going to reduce risks, uh, you know, you're going to save capital. I think they're all the oh, such good the, keywords. They're 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 all the ticks that anybody right. who's writing yeah. who's writing a check to you for some capex or some opex needs and wants to hear. You know, to justify that particular project. Regarding blockchain New Zealand, how do you see an industry organization 
like this, helping the broader industry. And uh, for yourself and you folks, you know, uh, as an Australian entity, um, joining a New Zealand organization is that is that for fun? What's the rationale there? Well, I mean, ASX does have a, believe it or not, we do have a New Zealand office. So we have an office an office in Auckland. Obviously, we have a number of New Zealand companies listed on our markets. Um, you know, we run some New Zealand derivatives contracts on our futures trading system, and we're obviously very close with New Zealand. Um, so to me, really, um, Blockchain New Zealand, um, it's, it's a great sort of educational body um, for its constituents. If we can sort of help educate sort of customers, and again, well, we've spoken about a, a few of our use cases, but obviously, you know, Australia, big agricultural producer, New Zealand, a big agricultural producer. For sure. Yeah, this this technology in terms of, you know, tracking and tracing and providence, whether it's meat, um, whether it's livestock, you know, whether it's wool, uh, wheat, milk, um, the applicability of this technology, I think, is, is agnostic to geography. And if we can make the adoption of it as easy as possible, because we're managing you know, the platform, managing the nodes, managing the services, such that you know, reducing the whole you know, total cost of ownership and expense to start, you know, let's call it innovating or experimenting with this technology um, and educating customers that it's not a big leap to take just to sort of muck around. And we've sort of, we, we open source some of our libraries and, and some of our applications so people can sort of, you know, at least sort of get a feel of what they're doing. And if we can do that through a vehicle uh, like Blockchain New Zealand, who has, you know, a group of constituents that are interested in this tech stack to start with, um, you know, the closer we can get and the more we can do with you, um, I think the better it is for both us and potentially uh, end users. Yeah, you know, uh, it's absolutely, the technology is absolutely agnostic to geography. And uh, I'm an open source proponent and uh, even learning about something like Daml, which was written by a company called Digital Asset, um, but they've open sourced. You know, it's a programming language. That's correct. Yeah, and so a anyone that sees the opportunity there can come in and benefit and uh, can continue along down the line. So I, I think that I think that's great, and uh, also good to know that you do have a office here in New Zealand. Um, I'm sure a lot of people do know it, um, but maybe more will know it now. Uh, and, I'm gonna, and I hope to get over there um, soon as well, Jeff. So it'd be great to, to meet you face to face. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are you up for some rapid fire to finish us off? Why not? Uh, all right. So I think I know the answer to the first one I got written down here, but we'll say, are we going to see NFT stock certificates? I think you might see FT certificates as in fungible, because again, I mean, a share of an equity, a share of a company is a share of a company. So I think you'll see them first probably in private equity. Um, and that's happening, I think, today. There are a number of our customers looking at that today. Um, and whether that sort of makes its way into the public listed exchange world, um, my belief is that it probably will in the next five to 10 years. Uh, CBDCs, are they coming? How far away are they? And is it going to be a dystopian nightmare or part of a digital evolution? Look, I think it's going to be an evolution, but I also think there's got to be a real world use case for it. So I think, you know, Australia, like New Zealand, you know, we've got some fairly good payment rails um, at the moment. So I think if you are going to have, or if you're going to convince a reserve bank or a Fed reserve to issue a CBDC, there's got to be some type of real world efficiency from it that can't be replicated with either a stable coin or the existing fiat payment rails and things like that. So I think it will happen and it's probably going to take the users and, and companies and institutions like ourselves to work out what that use case is that we could, that's going to make something again, whether it's capital efficiency, risk reduction, 
that can only be done with a CBDC versus a versus a stablecoin or existing sort of fiat payment rails. In crypto news, the merge is coming in a couple of hours' time. So Ethereum is switching from proof of work to proof of stake. Uh, do you have any thoughts on proof of stake versus proof of work? Um, I have thoughts on making stuff more efficient. So when you can make something more efficient, when you can reduce total cost of ownership, um, you know, when you can reduce cost of innovation, I think that's a good thing. I like this. Paul, you're an engineer at heart. You're interested in uh, how you can practically improve the scenario. I wish. I wish. <laughs> Who do you think Satoshi Nakamoto is? Oh, I have no clue. Neither do Baby, I. Baby Yoda? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, absolutely could be Baby Yoda uh, as far as anyone is concerned. Paul, thank you very much for coming on the show today. Jeff, been a pleasure. Uh, thanks to you and thanks to uh, Blockchain New Zealand. Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of the Blockchain New Zealand podcast, probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers. Cheers.